Have you ever thought about those kind of events that happen around the world, those big, large ones, things like the Olympic Games and, and so forth, and you wonder who's in behind that and how do these events come together and if there are sponsors and how there is their involvement within the different projects and they hold events within the big event as well. Well, my guest this week is a guy called Clint Paget, and Clint is the CEO and president of an organization called Project Success Inc. or Incorporated. Now, Project Success is really an organization that works with organizations like Coca-Cola, who might be one of the sponsors within one of the Olympic Games or some of the Olympic Games, or they may go in there to work with big projects, things like that, to make them happen. And so in doing so, Clint has learnt a lot over the years in doing all of this, and He's learnt a lot about project management and he's the, the author of two books, but one of, them, of the latest ones are is called How Teams Triumph and it's about managing by commitment. And it's really quite an interesting book and it's been a really cool uh, interview with Clint. The, the title of the episode is called People Matter because what Clint has noticed is that as he's gone and worked on these major projects that it actually is very matrix, but it actually comes down to people and people is really important. And so Clint has got many years of experience and he shares that within the actual interview as well. But the other thing too that we did talk about was about you can't hold people accountable, that they need to help themselves. But also he talked about we've always got to put people first. And people remember how you make them feel. That's really important to understand. But he had a really quite a cool, interesting sort of statement or thought in relation to the world of being agile organizations working and projects working in an agile kind of environment and i'd love you to listen to the episode because i want you to hear about what he thought about people who came up with that name or that concept of agile all right listeners hey this is a great interview with a guy called clint and uh, he and i had a fantastic conversation so whatever you're doing have a listen and enjoy Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful episode of the Leadership is Changing podcast. Great to have you here with us again today. I've got a brilliant guest with me today. His name is Clint Paget. Clint, a massive welcome to you. Thank you so much for being for letting me be here. Oh, it's awesome. Now, whereabouts are you in the world today? Today, I am in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I call home. But yesterday, I was in Berlin, Germany for three weeks. So it's, but today I'm home. That's nice. And in Germany, what, what were you doing there? So one of the things we do is we all plan worldwide sporting events for one of our major clients, which is Coca-Cola. And we were over there planning the 2024 European UEFA Championships for Coca-Cola's piece of it. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Go Olympia Kos, <laughs> which is a football team that is in Greece that the guy I used to work for when I was living in Greece for five years, he owned that team. And so that's why I'm like, yeah, go for it. European champions, that'd be pretty cool. Excellent. And so that, that'd be a, fan, a fascinating kind of uh, thing to do is organize events and things happening. And yeah, it's really good. Now, we've talked about where you are in the world. Now, you have an organization, you're the CEO and the president of an organization called Project Success Inc. Tell us more about them. 
So we've been around for 40 years, and what we do is we help our clients. We do training, help them learn how to do project management, and then we help them execute against their project plan. So the bulk of what we do after we train them is actually work side-by-side with them in their environment to plan their particular project in their own universe with all their terminology and their unique issues. And then we help them keep those projects on track. So that's basically, we're kind of a one horse pony, been doing it for 40 years though, and it's really worked well. And that's all around project management. So over the 40 years, have you seen a change in project management in that industry, in that field, in that capability, if I can call it that? Have you seen a change at all? Oh, for sure. I mean, but there's always the, not the flavor of the month necessarily, but because it moves a lot slower than that. It's maybe flavor of the year, flavor of the, of the decade. When I first came up in the organization, it was what what's now referred to as waterfall. And the agile became the, the thing that everybody did. And I got to tell you, man, whoever came up with the name for agile, smartest market people on the planet, because who doesn't want to be agile? No, I want to be stuck in the mud. Of course, I don't want to be agile. Of course you want to be agile. But what we do at our organization is really a blend of the two. We yep. believe that some of the weaknesses maybe with Agile is you do lack the ability to, of predicting a, a finish date for your customer and your client. You can't really predict that with any accuracy. And so all some of the bad things, people talk about waterfall, we circumvent by using some Agile processes. But at the end of the day, we're kind of a hybrid between the two. I don't think that Agile is a is where you're going to build a 30-story building in Times Square, but I think it works fantastically for software development, which is where it came from. So. To answer your question, I do think things have changed, but I think there's still a core that maintains the same, which is being able to know the critical path of your project, what's really driving you to finish when you do, and those being the places that you can put time, people, and money against to to resolve. Okay, cool. And then I see that you're also a Forbes Books author. What, what is that all about? So I've written two books on project management. The first one came out in 2009 on, 2009 on Wiley. And it's, that was called the Project Success Method, which is really more around the nuts and bolts of how do you plan and execute uh, projects, no matter what they might be. And then I noticed that over my career, I was spending more and more time talking about people. And in, all, in project management, there's really two parts to the equation. One is the process. You have to finish A before starting B, and then how long does the old process take to get done? But the other part is people. And I think that process is something maybe software can help with. It's something that can be written down. But people are a lot more difficult to solve. And knowing how to work with people in, in different organizations and knowing what motivates one person may demotivate somebody else. And having been having had a boss who would yell at other people but knew that would not work with me and I would shut down so it did not treat me that way. I saw more and more of my time in my conversations around project work really being focused on the people side. So my second book was the one that came out on Forbes Books and that was called How Teams Triumph. And it was really more around the people side of managing projects. Yeah, nice. Very good. I, I actually say, coming from the business side as well, program management, project management, then into HR 20 years ago, uh, I actually say life would be so much simpler without people. But then on the other side, <laughs> we need people, right? And so I think that from a project management perspective, sometimes it's actually quite, it's more difficult being a leader in the sense that it's a matrix kind of organization. So you're bringing people in for a project possibly. And so they don't actually always report into you. They may report into someone else, but you've got to get it done. You've got to get things done. And so I think it's more difficult than somebody reporting into them. I think you nailed it, right? That's the very crux of the issue is that most of the world today works in a matrix. And in a matrix organization, as you pointed out, you don't own the people on your project team. They don't report to you. You don't give them pay raises or job reviews or performance reviews. Their functional manager does that. And that's a that's certainly one complexity. And then the other complexity is most organizations work on more than one project at a time. So not only do you not own the people on your team, you're competing for their time with five other projects. 
And yet you're going to be held accountable to get the project done in the end. So what we've found is the people side being so important is making sure that the people hold themselves accountable because I can't as the project manager, I don't own them. The only chance I have of being successful in a matrix is I really have to focus on the people side and make sure they hold themselves accountable and the rest of the team holds each other accountable. So we try to drive that accountability back down to the team at our level and which is really where it belongs. And then the project manager is just there to facilitate and help solve problems. Yeah, and there's a great word, facilitate. That's what we're there. We're, it's almost, you remember the, the days where they had the traffic cop in the corner and the traffic cop was sort of signaling people where to go and For things sure. like that. That's how it is, I think, at times. It's a sort of a runaround sort of explanation. Now, you've also got a podcast called The Conversation with Clinton M. Paget Podcast, right? And so yep. you're having conversations with people? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, what I did was I said, all right, let me take this a step further and so some background, I'm an engineer, hmm. and one of the things that engineers are probably not known for are being conversational and open and warm and loving and wanting to have parties, and you know, it's just not who we are generally, right? As engineer, I'm being stereotypical, but I can speak about engineers because I are one, right? So I'd rather go to my cubicle and design the perfect widget than to go to your marketing meeting or your project management meeting. So I said, all right, look, if I'm going to do this, let's do this 100%, which is the only way I do things. And so let's do the podcast and let's interview authors that are doing, that have written really good books on how to be a leader, how to communicate, how do you have conversations, do academics that are doing research in that same area, and they try to interview some business leaders around how have they seen to be successful, what are their keys and tricks to success, and that's really the gist of the podcast or the, the purpose of it. Oh, excellent. That, that sounds like some pretty fascinating conversations you have with people. I've been lucky enough, uh, my first guest was Keith Ferrazzi, who's written, I think, three New York Times bestseller books. He actually spoke... So I'm a Georgia Tech grad in electrical engineering, but then my MBA was from Duke University, and he was the commencement speaker when I graduated from Duke. He had just written a book called Never Read Alone, and I was lucky enough to have him come on the podcast, and I've, I've talked to many New York Times bestsellers since, really around some great conversation pieces, Sherry Turkle from MIT, just some fantastic people who came on, and I've been very lucky. Yeah, and before Project Success and what you're doing there, what was your background around your career? What did you do before that? So I grew up in the South of the U.S. and when I graduated high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So I did what a lot of us in the South do is I, I joined the service and I spent six years in the Navy on an aircraft carrier. And what you learn then is you work seven days a week because you're at sea or you should be. That's where ships are made for sea, right? So you spend 12, you spend seven days a week at sea and you could be out for six, seven months at a time. And you work 12 hour shifts, 12 on, 12 off, except for the days you work 16 hours because you have this rotating watch. So after six years of this, I thought there's probably something better to do in my life than this. So I got out of the Navy and I went to work in the shipyard. And there's probably no greater motivation to go to college in the world than to work in a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia in December and January, which is exactly what I was doing. It's super cold because if, if you think about it, ships are on the water. It's cold in Norfolk, Virginia in the U.S. in the wintertime. The, water, the wind is coming off the water, slicing right through you. And so after a few months of that, I thought, okay, there's definitely got to be something better to do in my life than this. And I was lucky enough to get accepted at the Georgia Tech. I'd wanted to be an electrical engineer since I could remember. I mean, probably from the time I was eight or nine years old, I was checking out books on robotics and lasers. And I knew I wanted to be an electrical engineer. And luckily, I was able to get accepted in the Georgia Tech. When I graduated, my first job, I walked across the street. And if you're familiar with Atlanta, Georgia Tech is on one side of the street and across North Avenue is Coca-Cola. So I spent six years at Coca-Cola in the sales equipment engineering group working on different projects really within cold drinks. We worked on bottle can vendors, fountain machines, et cetera. 
And then in 94, the city of Atlanta got awarded the Olympics and I wanted to work on that project. So I left the company, the Coca-Cola company, and then went to work for Project Success, which is the same company I'm with all these years later. And I got to be involved in the 96 Olympic Games, the planning of it. So that's kind of my background. Yeah, brilliant. I actually had the privilege of uh, coaching some uh, executives from Coca-Cola around the world as well and really cool people and an awesome organization. So that's really great that you shared all that. But how did you actually get into leadership yourself? So it it started really in the Navy. And one of the things you'll find is sometimes you learn things the way it should from the way things should be done. And then, then you see how they aren't, that they're done the opposite way. And you go, okay, I don't want to do that. So in the Navy and any service branch, you're going to be led by somebody who is a rank above you. And that rank may not be achieved by competence. It may be achieved by the fact, and I mean, I don't want to broad brush it too much, but I was enlisted and therefore I worked for people who hadn't gotten a college degree. And some of those people were not I didn't think as smart as I was and that their, their management style was basically, I rank above you, you, thou shalt do. And so I said, okay, that's not how I want to be when I'm a leader. So I did get some leadership roles in my six years there because I began to gain rank. And of course, then I had people under me when I did that. And then working in, when I got to college, I was an older student, right? I was 24 years old when I got to college and you come into college at 24 and your main goal isn't to go drinking every night because you've already been there, done that. Nobody does it better than the U.S. Navy, right? Maybe some, maybe the Royal Navy might help, may say differently, but you know, the U.S. Navy, we definitely know how to party. So I'd already done all that and I was nose to the grindstone and people just kind of gravitated to you because you'd been out there doing stuff and you're a little bit older. So maybe you had some answers to things. You'd lived some life that they hadn't seen. And therefore the leadership roles kind of, you almost got nominated for them because of that. And then you don't do a bad job and you continue to get, get those roles. And then I went to work for the Project Success when I first got there, I thought I was the youngest guy in the company. They had really an older group of people and they were all ex-military, which is one of the reasons I got hired. They wanted somebody that was ex-military who had worked at Coca-Cola for because they wanted to work on the Olympics. And I said to myself, when I got there, I'm going to work as hard as I can and to see what happens. So I'm not going to worry about hitting my friends up on the weekends. I was head down, just work as hard as I can. And over a few years, I was getting recognized for the amount of work I was doing, the amount of billings, frankly, as a consulting company that I was generating. And I began to grow in my roles. And then uh, my direct boss had a falling out with the owner of the company. And so he got, he didn't get fired, but he got sidelined. And I went to the bo- the owner and I said, I'd love to have that job. And since I've been doing the work, I know the people and I'll continue to do that. We can just add this, like an extra thing on top of me. Of course, he said, that sounds like a great idea. No more money and you get to do all the work. That's fantastic. So I did that. And one of the things I found was people... Nobody wanted to tell me no, because I had done it. I had worked 52 weeks a year. I'd worked 50 of those weeks on the road. I'd done it all. So nobody, when I asked them to do something, nobody would say no, because I wasn't asking them to do something I hadn't already done multiple times. And there was a lot of loyalty that got engendered and people saw that I was also had their best interest at heart. I'll try to make this as short as I can, but basically around this time, I'd been there with the company about 11 years, the last three or four of which was running the consulting group. And the owner wanted to retire. He wanted to get out of the business. And he wanted to sell to somebody within the company. And there ended up being a couple of different factions within the company. And the other faction, I'd, so it wasn't actually that I wanted it. It was just, I didn't want the other side to have it because they're, what they were going to do, I thought, would destroy the company who it was. So who we had been is an organization. So I said, well, I think if we do that in five years, we won't be here as a company. So let me do something different. So I put together an offer. I talked to 13 different banks. And the 13th did not give me the loan, but they were, they gave me the information I needed to go back to bank number 12 who gave me the loan. And so anyway, I was able to buy the company 
So I kind of, somebody said one time, how do you get to be president? And I said, it's easy. You buy the company and make yourself president. So that's kind of what I did. And then, but again, because of the fact that I had been there and they almost saw it as one of their own taking over, it, it grew from there. And I, that, so that's really my role the last 15, 17 years, I guess, 2000, 18 years now has been in that role as the owner. Cause this is my, be going into my 30th year of working at the company. And I still continue to do the job today. As I just said, I was in Berlin for three weeks and with two other people on my team and we're all doing the work. Still the same. Yeah, that's brilliant. Wow. That's a really cool kind of story that you share there, that journey that you've actually had. Now, the question I've got here for you next is, now this person could be a libel from history. Who's your favorite leader and why? I really struggle to, with this one, to be honest. I, I don't, I wish I had an answer for you. I wish I... Maybe I need to be read more histories because Winston Churchill comes to mind when I think of things, but then I, there's some negative things you hear there as well. What I think I've modeled myself after wasn't a single individual. I kind of alluded to this a little while ago. I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of different people in my career. And then through my interview process, I've talked to a lot of great leaders and I've tried to adopt some of the things that I saw common in those interviews or common in what I was experiencing. And then I also took from people that did it a way that I did not like and said, I will never do that when I'm in charge. I would never do it that way. I would not yell at people. I would not do this, that, or the other. So I've kind of cobbled things together through listening to other people talk and, and watching them, observing what they do and how they do it, and then really recognizing within myself who I am as an individual. And one of the things that I do is I put people first. I've always been a people person. And I joke this really, I was talking to a guy at Warner Brothers Pictures this has been years ago now, but he, he was, I was trying to introduce him to our process and what we do. And he stopped me mid-conversation. He says, I thought you said you were an engineer. I said, ma'am, I'm a electrical engineer. He goes, what is all this touchy-feely people stuff? And I said, I know it sounds funny becoming from an engineer about people stuff, but last time I checked, people do projects. And unless you, if you want to be successful in the projects, you had better learn how to deal with people. And I'd rather deal with people from a mutual respect perspective than a mandate perspective, because if you do that, then they're just looking for the next time to get out or, or you end up getting hurt in the end. So I've, I've kind of taken the things that I liked that I, and also taken the things I did not like to make sure that I don't do. And so I like things that I like to be transparent. I like to be consistent in how I do things. I'm the same person when times are bad as I am when times are good. So I wish I, again, I wish I had that answer to say, I, this is the person you should go model yourself after this person, but I just don't have that. For me, it was kind of a hodgepodge of different experiences in my life with different people. I think you're right. I mean, the thing is that we have experiences with leaders around uh, around our life and our journey and the positive and negative experiences. And so sometimes we'll take the good of it. Sometimes the negative experiences I've had with leaders that I, I haven't liked or didn't enjoy working with them, actually, I learned the most from them. So it's actually quite weird. So then, yes, I agree with what you're saying too, that there was things I didn't want to do like them, but there was things that they challenged me on and they actually made me grow more than the positive experiences as well. So it's actually quite interesting in how all that works. So, yeah. So it's good. I think you're on to something there. I, I do think that people learn from failure and I've heard certainly that you learn more from failure than you do for success. I don't know that I 100% agree with that, but I do know you remember your failures probably more than your successes. That's for sure. They haunt you more than your successes do. But I do think in your, like you said, you do learn from those people who tend to push you and it may not be your best memory in the world, but maybe you grew because of it. Yeah. And I also think that there's the other side too, which is people remember how you made them feel. And when it's an emotional thing, that's really quite, quite hard. And some people hang on to some experiences that have been not nice for them at all. And it's hard for them and they have to process it and go through it to move on. And it's, yeah. And so sometimes they may take that into another role. 
And then they might think that their leader is going to be like that, but then they have a nice experience where a positive experience because the leader is totally different, which is good for them too. Yeah. And I think you, you actually, you're saying was something I've heard before that I really liked as well. And that is that you, people may not remember what you say, but they remember how you made them feel. And so even when you, and the way I look at that is even if I have bad news to deliver, I mean, I've run my company through the great recession, right? In 2008, 2009, and we had to make some super hard decisions during that time period. And then, of course, through COVID, we're basically a face-to-face organization. We work best when we're face-to-face with a team, and that wasn't happening during COVID. So when you have these hard conversations you have to have, if you can just be open and transparent and do it from a sense of putting yourself in their shoes and knowing that they're, you're maybe letting somebody go or whatever that hard decision you have to make is, or maybe you're telling the whole organization, hey, you know what? We're a family. We got to take pay cuts all together, but I'm going to do the same thing that you do. I think that if you can do that in a compassionate way and let them feel like that you that they understand you care, then whatever the message is, I think it's maybe muted a bit. They don't feel the full brunt of it because of the fact that you're making them feel like they matter and, and they should matter. I remember in Hewlett Packard, we had a period of time where the company wasn't going well. The share price was falling like a brick or like a rock. It was just going down. And so we all had to take pay cuts. And so we were asked to, but in some countries you couldn't, you didn't say you must take a pay cut. In some countries, you had to ask and they had to accept. Our country was one of those. And so I did take a pay cut and it was for probably about a, a year. But the thing was, when the new CEO came on board and things started to turn around, they actually gave those people who decided to take a pay cut a bonus, a small bonus to say thank you. Those who didn't take the pay cut, who decided they didn't want to do it, really got upset. And I was like, wow. And it was the difference between those who are willing to stand on the line and do things or step over the line and and make things happen and those who didn't. But when it came to the bonus time, they also wanted to have their hand out too to say, I do it. But they didn't take the risk. They didn't do the hard work. And Yeah. And that's frustrating from from the person who did, right? I mean, it's also incredulous sometimes when I see things like that is how in the world would you expect to get the bonus when you didn't take, you didn't feel the pain that everybody else felt voluntarily, you got to stay whole and then you want the piece they're going to get now? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Now, the show is called Leadership is Changing. When I say that title or that statement, what does that mean for you? I think, and I don't want to be contrarian, but- uh, Come I, on, I'm do it. Go on, be it. I would say, so what I wrote down when I was thinking about this is preparing for this interview, I thought, but is it really? I mean, I don't, I'm one of the, and maybe I'm this in the minority and I'm wrong, which could very well be the, the truth. I don't think leadership should be changing. The world around us is changing. And if that's happening, then if I'm a team member or an employee, what I want is my leadership to be consistent. What I don't want is I don't want Bob, the boss, to be different, to be one kind of person when things are all good and it's easy to get bonuses and it's easy to pat people on the back because everything is raw, raw, everything's just going well. And then have a different Bob when things are going well. I want to know consistently, am I going to be treated the same way? I mean, is he going to be honest with me when things are good, but also when things aren't good? Is he going to be transparent? Is he going to have my back in the bad times like he's had my back in the good times? So yeah, bonuses are easy when things are good, but what about when things are tough? Are you taking the same pay cuts that I'm taking? Are you going to, are you going to swallow the same bitter pill that I'm having to swallow? So are you going to be consistent in that way? So I would like to posit that maybe leadership Maybe it is changing, but I'm thinking maybe it shouldn't be. If I, if the world is changing around us, and it certainly is, I would like to think that somebody in the organization at a certain level is has got some consistency that could be that stability we need in a world to change. Otherwise, I feel like I'm swimming from point A to point B, and point B keeps moving. I'd like Bob or Jane or somebody on the island flagging me down, going, it's over here, come this way. It's shallower over here. This is the safe place, right? Kind of leading me through that as opposed to not knowing where I'm going. So mm-hmm. I do think 
certainly the world is changing. Pandemics and recessions and AI, we can keep going. There's multiple things that are constantly changing. I do think that consistency from your leaders would be, I think, a beneficial thing. Yeah, we'll talk about the, the change as well that's actually happening in the world in a minute. The thing here is that when you said at the beginning of, of after that, I asked that question, which is it really? I, I think the beautiful thing about the statement as well or is, is really it's a question. It's a statement and a question, and it's actually making people think about it. It's actually making people think. And so it's raising the awareness with leaders about, is it changing? Do I need to change? The world's changing. Am I keeping up with things? And that's the big one. I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't change. And I want to be I want to be clear here when I say this. As a leader, when I say I hope leadership isn't changing, it doesn't mean I don't change my mind. I often change my mind. I, I base on I base my decisions on facts and data. And I may get data at a later point that says, you know what? My last decision, while it was correct at the time based on the data that I had, is now wrong. I'm going to change my mind to go in a different direction. So I can change my mind, but I want to treat the people on my team with the same be consistent in how I deal with them and be consistent in my communication, be consistent in the way that I operate and who I am as a person and who I am as a leader shouldn't really change. But I, I, something when I, I want to make sure people understand, I'm not saying I don't ever change my mind. I often change my mind as data changes, but people know they're going to get from me the same no matter whether time's good or bad. Yeah. And I think that the important thing here is that at least you made a decision, right? Because there's nothing worse than a leader not making a decision. The key word that I'm picking up from you that you've actually said it a few times already, Clint, is the word consistent or consistency. And I think leaders need to be consistent. And if they're not, people will think one day, oh, what Dennis has arrived at work. So which one of Dennis is going to show up today, right? Because it's exactly. inconsistent. And then that's a scary thing for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. You talked before about the world is changing. There's a lot going on and AI, technology, business, data or data, doesn't matter where you, depending on where you come from, what school you went to, sort of social media from a social perspective as well. It's changing so much. When we talk about that, and it's a fast-paced, ever-changing world, what makes a leader successful in that world that's moving so fast? So I don't want to beat the same drum over and over again, but I do think, so let me put it this way. In the U.S. here, we're having, which I'm sure everybody's aware, even those outside of the U.S., our Congress is just a mess. And so now we are potentially, unless something's happened today that I'm unaware of, maybe going to shut down the government tomorrow. And yet the same people who are making the decision to shut the government down will not be subjected to the pay cuts or no pay. They still get paid no matter what. And to me, this is patently unfair. It, I'm okay if you decide to make that decision to shut the government down, but then you shouldn't be paid while that's happening. You should come to work and do your job and get the same pay stoppage as everybody else does. Years ago when they were passing Obamacare, and I noticed that people in Congress didn't have to do that. They got to keep their health care no matter what. And so to me, that's not being consistent. That's not being transparent. That's if you make a decision that's good enough for 99.9% of the, of the United States and you ought to be making the decision that's the same for you. So I think as the world changes, you need that consistency from the people that matter, for the people that are leading. And that was the idea that just came to my head when I read the question. Oh my God, that's, yeah. I was so mad yesterday when I got back from Germany, I was catching up a little bit of news and it's, this is insane that they still get paid. And it's just yeah. not, to me, it's not the way it should work. You're right. And if they're not being paid like everyone else, I bet you they'd be making decisions pretty quick. Exactly. You wouldn't make these decisions that are based purely on stumping for something or making a, I don't know if it's, if it's the same way everywhere, but here they'll come on C-SPAN and they'll be recorded making this impassioned speech. There's nobody around. Nobody's in there. They're doing it just for the camera, just for their constituents back home. And it's not really for any pure benefit. It's just for the benefit of themselves and be able on the on camp train trail to refer to, to look what I said. But nobody was there. They weren't really talking to anybody. And I think you make different decisions when they affect you 
than if they disaffect everybody else. Yep. And then the other side of that to me is, and maybe it doesn't happen, but it's happened every time before. Everybody that didn't work for the next you know, two, three, four weeks, they eventually get the paid and get back paid. And so basically as a taxpayer, it's no different to me. I still pay the same amount of taxes and people just didn't work for three weeks and they still got paid. So and I'm, I'm not making light of that. I'm sure for them it's tough because maybe this time they don't get paid and maybe they don't get their job back. I'm not making light of that. But if I look at the big picture, nothing changes. They still get hmm. their 52-week salary, just comes maybe you know, three weeks late, but yep. we didn't get the 52 weeks of actual work done. So not only did you not help the situation as a government, you heard it. Yep. And they've got commitments as well, right? They've got mortgages. They've got all sorts of things too that they need to look after as well. But yeah, it's really quite fascinating how that all works. And I'm just, I, I think for me, a lot of times when I look at their leaders like that, it is, are you really a leader? I think you're just a person in a role that's got a title because a leader, a real leader doesn't do that kind of stuff. I mean, maybe they do it in a way that they fight for certain things. I get that. And that's all good too. But it's in the, as, and it also then is at the expense of what? And it's at the expense of others as well. So yeah, really fascinating. And then how that all works. Yeah, one of my core principles is lead by example. And they're not doing that. They're doing the opposite. They're saying, here's, I'm going to make this policy for everybody except the people in the room today. We are different. And that's not leading by example. I mean, I think if you want people to truly follow you, and if you truly want to be a leader, then you have to lead. You have to be able to, to take the first bullet. You've got to be out in the forefront of whatever it is you're doing saying, I'm here, get behind me and we'll go in this direction. And that to me is a leader. Although you're, otherwise you're a director, you're standing behind the scenes directing things. And that's not who I want to be. I want to be a leader. Okay, cool. Very good. Now, you and I have been talking about leadership through the lens of a leader. If we to change lenses and think about an employee, you've got a, an organization, you've got people working for you and so forth, and you've actually been an employee in the past too, like I have. Has employees' expectations of leaders changed? I do think they have, and I think that's fair. I think that everything I've said to this point, I still truly believe. If I put myself in the employee's shoes, I do think, though, they expect different. They expect Clint to be different in, in 2023 than Clint was in 2000, right? Because he's older, he's smarter. Hopefully he's learned some valuable lessons along the way. And management styles can change. You put yourself back 30 years ago, it was a very authoritarian, do it this way or I'll fire you and find somebody else who you know will do it if you don't. Then you kind of went through, at least my, from my perspective, you saw people that was more of a kumbaya and let's all go together. And, I, and so maybe I think the expectations change, but to me, it's also still about delivering on the promises you make to people and being true and really caring about who they are as a person. And maybe as a leader of, of Hewlett Packard, you don't have the luxury of, as I do with a smaller company where each employee and their spouses and their kids, and you can't call them all by name. And But that doesn't mean you can't make them feel special when you talk to them. Some of the things we do is every year, I make sure that I, I write a birthday card on their birthdays and thank them for, here's a gift card for a hundred bucks and happy birthday. And on their anniversary day with the company, thanks for your service the last year. And I try to do those little things. And any company can do those kind of things as well. So I think from an employee's perspective that they should be some, expecting something different from their leaders as time progresses. But again, I think the core should say the same and maybe the delivery mechanism might change. You deliver your messages differently in COVID than you do when you're all face-to-face because we can have an all-hands meeting and I can see you face-to-face and we can have side conversations. You know, maybe the meeting is an hour and for an hour after the meeting, I'm just chatting with individuals in the room which doesn't really happen that well in a virtual world, right? In the virtual world, you have the meeting and then the meeting is over and the administrator ends the meeting and that's it. But so I think the content that you give may be the same, maybe the mechanism of the vehicle is different. Yeah, yeah, very good, yeah. Now, if I was to get you to get your crystal ball out now and think about the future, where do you see leadership being in five years? 
oh, isn't the whole world going to be over in five years? Isn't AI <laughs> doing everything? I mean, come on. We're going to have AI running the boat. We're going to have AI steering the boat. We're going to have AI building the boat. I don't know. It's going to do our interviews for us. <laughs> yeah. It's going to find the exactly. guests for us. Yep. Yeah. I, I Listen, I'm a technical person, so I'm fascinated by AI. Mm. I, I don't. People have asked me, do you think AI, do you worry it's going to take over your job? And I, I don't because- until Sue, Bob, and Fred, if physical labor is still required, then I don't think we're going to have, and some intelligent thinking as well, I don't think AI is going to take it. AI can do robotics, but AI doesn't make decisions, at least not as well as we still do. And they don't have the critical thinking, I think, that we do. Now they're going to get better, but I think Sue, Bob, and Fred are safe for the moment. As far as the future, I think, again, the way we deliver things may change. Whether you're in the office may change, whether it's all hybrid or fully remote may change. Maybe Zoom becomes more of a permanent aspect of what we do, WebEx, whatever, I'm not, whatever platform you want to use, Teams, whatever. But I still think that what comes out at the end is when I'm working for Dennis, even in five years, is Dennis going to be, is he going to be the same Dennis as he was, but smarter five years ago than he was five years ago, but he's going to be the same. Is he going to treat me the same? Is he going to have my back the same? Is he going to be the same consistent, appreciative of my work effort? Than, I, than he was back then. And I think that to me is still the important point. I mean, listen, if you don't have an organization, if you're a team of one, and I know a couple of these who are solopreneurs, if you want to call it that. And while I like them as individuals, we can't work together because they are 100% about throwing the parts in the water, start swimming and trying to build a boat around them as they go. And that works when you're a solopreneur because if you sink, it's all on you and you got nobody, you're not drowning anybody else with you and nobody, you don't have to have a true vision. Because you, you think about it as you do it and do it. But if you're leading an organization, building the boat as you're going along, I don't think is how I'd, I wouldn't, I was a team member, I would not be on board with that. I want you to have a plan for how we're going to do this and how we're going to get there. What's our, how, how are we going to go from point A to point B? Fully understanding if we hit a cyclone in the middle, we're going to have to do some detours. I get all that. Plans change. But give me a vision for where we're going and don't just say we're going to figure it out as we go. I don't think that works in large organizations and it certainly doesn't work in my organization. So I think lots of things can change in the next five years or 50 mm. years. Mm. But I think people don't change that quickly, right? If you look back over through time, maybe that's somebody I should interview is these people who study humanity over, over the you know, eons. But I don't think you change that much in short periods of time as a human being. So I think it's all going to come down still to how does Dennis treat me today and what is Dennis... Who is Dennis the person and his core? Who is that person going to be in five years should basically be the same. Mm -hmm. Very good. It's been a real pleasure working, talking with you and interviewing and having a great conversation here. If our listeners are wanting to get hold of you, where can they go? You can find me on LinkedIn at clint.paget. You can find me on productsuccess.com. That's probably the two best ways. Excellent. Well, there you go, listeners. We'll put that all that information to the show notes, so then you can contact Clint if you need to. But remember this, what Clint has just shared with us, that you always put people first, be consistent, be transparent. Hey, thanks for joining us on today's episode. Until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 